Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, you can find it on page 1375 in your pew Bible. Hebrews 4, and we'll read the first 13 verses. Let us hear God's holy word. Therefore, since a promised remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom... It was first preached, did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. May he also bless the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we... So a couple weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 3, that we were introduced to this theme of rest as we were enlightened of Israel's unfaithfulness in contrast to Moses' faithfulness and how God had sworn in His wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. And so we recognize that as As we think about this rest, it's pictured here as Israel entering the land of Canaan in way of rest. But maybe, children, what do you think would be a good definition of rest? Is that what you would automatically think about when you thought about rest? That you were going to the land of Canaan, to the promised land? Well, very likely if I asked you to define rest, you would not define it in that way. You might define rest as as going to bed to get a good night's rest. After a hard day's work, you would come home and and be able to 
have a break and eventually go to bed, your minds, your bodies would be able to rest and rejuvenate and you'd be prepared to go to work again the next day. Maybe if you thought about rest a little bit more, you would think, well, there's also this idea of rest when there's a time of conflict. In a time of conflict, there's friction and and fighting. We think of right now Russia and Ukraine. There's there's these tensions building up between on their border. And and this has happened maybe five years ago. and, And now it's happening again. And... There was a time of rest or peace in between, but now the tensions are coming again. And so you would call that time a time of rest, a rest from conflict. There are other times when you talk about storms. You have one storm come through and another storm is on the way following it. And in between you would call that a time of rest, a time where you can have some peace and security, a time where you recognize that you don't have to be on guard 100% of the time. And that's, as you bring all of these things together, it actually describes the rest that God has in store for all of His people. Not only a rest in the land of Canaan, not only a rest from all of our work, not only a rest so that we can be rejuvenated and live in a time of peace and security and, and so on, but to have that for all eternity with God perfectly. And so, our, so the author of Hebrews is, is really fleshing out this rest here in Hebrews chapter 4. Notice he goes on to describe it in far more terms than just the land of Canaan. Notice in verse 3 how we read there, For we who have believed do enter that rest. In In other words, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have entered a rest in God that it's no longer about our works, and our earning and meriting our own righteousness, but it's a resting in His salvation, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've entered that rest. And yet those who are disbelieving, those who are faithless, they will not enter His rest, he says. And then he goes on very interestingly in verse 3, Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he's going back to creation Sabbath, where God had for six days created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he had a Sabbath of rest. Resting from all his works. And now he's saying that there is coming another day where that Sabbath will be fulfilled perfectly. A Sabbath rest where we will be able to rest in the fact that God has in the past created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He has given His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to prepare and to earn our righteousness so that we could enjoy His rest and to be able to enjoy that rest from all eternity. And what will that be? 
What will that be? Well, that will be when God shows himself and reveals himself as the absolute sovereign of the heavens and the earth and all men will bend the knee before King Jesus and confess that he is Lord and he has sovereign power and dominion over everything. And then there will be peace and security for the people of God for all eternity. Never to have to endure a storm in life again. Never to have conflict again. Never to be beset by sin and unbelief again. But to enjoy his rest for all eternity. What a day. You may not have thought of that as rest before you came to church this morning. That's the rest that the author of Hebrews is speaking of. That eternal rest. And how will we then enter God's rest? I'd like to look at that with the theme, entering God's rest, first of all, by faith. And secondly, through the living word. Entering God's rest by faith. Verses 1 through 2 we read in Hebrews 4, 1 through 2, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. I'd like to notice a couple things out of, this, out of these two, two verses. First of all, there's a promise of entering God's rest. That promise still remains. As long as we hear this word, their promise remains of entering His rest. But secondly, we also need to know that we ought to be spiritually concerned lest any of us seem to come short of it. And notice there, it's speaking of let us fear and be spiritually concerned, lest any of you, any one particularly of you, come short of it. And we're reminded of Hebrews chapter 3 again, aren't we? That as we are called to exhort one another daily, we are to be in His Word daily. We are to be encouraging one another daily. We are to be taking those backsliders up along with us. We are take those stragglers in the faith along with us as those in the faith. And we need to be doing so to enter God's rest. Lest any one of us be picked off, as it were, by the devil. A straggler in the herd is, is, is an easy prey to a wolf. And so it is. So it is as those who are straggling behind spiritually. We, we, we're to call them today. And exhort them today. And that's all of our responsibilities. To care for each one. To, to ensure that that promise remains of entering His rest. 
The third thing I want to notice is the message of the gospel is not different in the Old Testament as it is today. There's no difference. In the essence of the gospel that was proclaimed to Abraham and to all of the Israelites is the same as it is for us today. Now, granted, they were looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that they saw and heard directed them forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look backward and we see the coming of the Messiah and we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Gospel is the same. The Gospel is the same. And we are called to the same thing. Faith and repentance. Today if you hear His voice. Harden not your heart. The fourth thing I want to notice from these words is being a part of God's covenant and His blessings does not equal entering into His rest. Being born as as a child of parents who have the faith being instructed in godliness and in catechism instruction and, and, and uh, finishing all of the instruction ministry of the church is, is not equal entering God's rest. Israel had that all too. But not all entered into His rest. Why? Because of unbelief. It did not profit them. They heard the same gospel message, but it did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith. So, therefore, simply hearing the message of the gospel is not sufficient to enter God's rest. We need a living, living faith. Let's look at this faith a little bit closer. As we define this faith, we recognize that that really in chapter 3 is set the stage of the faith of Moses and the faithlessness of the Israelites. And faith here is, is shown as being able to trust in God. Just like Joshua and Caleb when they came back from spying on the land, they could trust in God that God would lead them into the promised land despite the giants, despite the big walled cities, despite having so many people in this land that they felt overwhelmed, Joshua and Caleb believed, could trust in God, that He would give them this land as He promised. And so what happens is, faith is this. Faith is, yes, being informed about who God is. Joshua and Caleb were certainly informed about who God is. They had knowledge of God. They had knowledge of His promises. But it was a knowledge that wasn't just in their minds. It was a knowledge that they could hold on to. They could trust in. I, 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 I would suppose that many of us could have a knowledge of how an airplane would fly. And, and we, we could take extra classes to accumulate more and more knowledge on, on all of what causes an airplane to fly. We could study aviation for hours, days. And we could have all of this knowledge. And yet, we could fear getting onto that airplane. And some people legitimately have that. They have a phobia of thinking about flying. And would never be able to do it. Even though they have all of this knowledge, 
all of this knowledge about the safety. It's probably even safer to fly in an airplane than drive in a car across the country. And yet, they cannot do it because they cannot trust it. And see, that's like faith. You could know all about who God is. You could know all about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. You could know everything from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. You could even have it all memorized and not trust the Lord Jesus Christ with your life and your salvation. You see, faith and rest really are like a hand in a glove, aren't they? It fits perfectly. Because when you have faith in something, you are completely, you are completely entrusted to it. You cast yourself upon it. You can rest on it. You can lean on it. You can put your confidence in it. Even when you can't fully understand it. And that's what it is to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. To cast yourself upon Him. To lean upon Him. To trust in Him. To say, I I, I know I can't earn my salvation before God, but I know that He has done it for me. I can fully cast myself upon Him. And his mercy. John Payton was a, a missionary to the New Hebride Islands, and uh, he had these were cannibals, and he was trying to learn their language. Didn't know their language at all. So, <clears throat> as he's trying to interact with their language and what they would say in different settings, he would come up with a whole translation of their language, and then try to put the Bible into their own words. And as, he, as he's going through this process, he runs into this real big problem. He could not find a word for faith for these New Hebride Christians. And so one day, Pastor Peyton recognized a group of men were coming back from hunting. And at the end of their hunt, they were just completely tired and weary and exhausted. And they cast themselves upon the chairs and says, oh, it's so good to stretch out here and rest. Then he knew that he found the word for faith. And he used the very word that they said, stretch out upon for faith. You can almost hear his translation, can't you, of Acts 16, verse 31. Stretch yourselves out on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Cast yourself upon Him. Rest upon Him. Stretch yourself out upon Him. And you will be saved. Rest in Him. That's faith. Faith gives rest. But there's, an, there's not only a, a definition of this faith, but there's an urgency to this faith. Notice here in 
in this chapter 4 is repeating again and again what he started in chapter 3. Psalm 95. Saying, and he, he first of all acknowledges, we who have believed have entered that rest, but then he reminds them that he has sworn in his wrath that, he will, that they will not enter into my rest. Those who do not believe. And he reminds them that today is the day that we are called to hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. And there's an urgency that is being placed upon us here. Because these words are repeated for emphasis. To remind us again and again. And to know the hardness of our hearts. You know, if something's really hard, you might have to swing a few times with a hammer to break it, right? Just like the author of Hebrews. Knowing the hardness of the heart. He takes several swings of the hammer, reminding them today, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if you do and you do not repent and you do not believe, God has sworn in His wrath that, he will not, that you will not enter His rest. We all know not only something hard needs to be hit several times with a hammer, but if you have a hard habit to break, it takes a lot of reminders and warnings to do so. You can almost have maybe reminders on your fridge. Do not continue to do this or whatever you want to do. You, you put it right in front of you. Any habit you would want to break and you warn yourself and you remind yourself daily, daily, daily. Just like the Word of God. Today, today, today. There's urgency. Today, do not harden your hearts. Hear His voice. There's an urgency. Urgency to direct us outside of ourself to a God who has rested from His works. To a God who has provided a place of rest that is still available and still remains for His people. And notice, the author to Hebrews isn't just talking about the rest of salvation, as I pointed out earlier. But he's talking about that Sabbath rest. And he goes on to build on this in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Now, what did Joshua do? And maybe you'd be surprised to see Joshua's name even come up here. Haven't we been talking about Moses and Israel? And, and yet it's not surprising at all. Because the author of Hebrews, he's been showing us that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to, to um, Moses. He's superior uh, in, in way of a high priest. And we're going to look at that more later on uh, today and in, in many ways throughout throughout the book of Hebrews. But he's also superior to Joshua. To Joshua. You can imagine the Hebrews, they were hearing this word, and, and they could understand where Moses did not enter the promised land. And, and so certainly Jesus is, is superior to Moses. But Joshua did. He took the people across the Jordan into the promised land. And so Joshua also had high esteem among the Hebrew Christians, especially the Judaizers. 
But the author of Hebrews wants to demonstrate that Jesus is even superior to Joshua. Even as Joshua led the people of Israel into Canaan, he did not lead them into God's eternal rest, that rest that is still available for the people of God. A rest that will be fulfilled in eternity. And verse 10 actually elaborates on this as well. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. In other words, we rest from our works and enter God's rest when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer need to prove or earn or merit our righteousness. Absolutely not. But we rest in him. We rest fully in him. This message of the gospel leading unto God's eternal Sabbath rest is found clearly displayed here in Hebrews 4. Because that's what the gospel is. is to rest in Jesus by faith. He's the object of our faith. And I don't know where you are in life today. In your spiritual life. Is your soul one of those souls that, are, that is restless? Restless. Or are you at perfect rest in this world? That'd be a, that would be a terrible danger. Perfectly at rest here in this world. At peace. Comfortable. It's your habitat. You're like a fish in the water in this world. That's an uncomfortable place to be. Or is your soul restless? What are you, there has to be something more. Something more to this world than, than get an education, get a good job, retire early, have a huge bank account, and enjoy life. There has to be something more to life than this because if that's all there is, it's, it's pretty empty at the end. Are you one of those restless ones trying to, trying to want to figure out what is life all about? Well, the only way you're going to find rest in that question is to find rest in God, in Jesus Christ. To be able to rest in His death, in His resurrection, and the promises that He gives us in His Word. This is a message that we as stubborn, hard sinners need to hear again and again and again. And we hear it from the Word of God. That's the means. That's the means of faith. And that brings us to our second point. We need to enter God's rest through the living Word. By faith, through the living Word. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living, and powerful, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Quite sober words. But notice again the connection. The doctrine of rest. The response of faith. Be diligent to enter that rest. By the word. By fellowship. It's connecting us throughout this passage. And so we need to take this seriously. How serious are we about the Word of God? Does it show in our corporate worship to come under the preaching of the Word of God? Does it show as we sing together that we desire first and foremost to praise God through His Word? As we pray together, is it Word-focused? As we fellowship together in the narthex, in the fellowship hall, is it word-focused? Are we truly seeking to bring those stragglers and backsliders with us by the Word of God? Because the Word of God is what gives us perseverance to the end. God uses His Holy Spirit by His Word to bring us through the wilderness of this life into his eternal rest. That's how he preserves us. We can talk about the Father's hand and how no one can pluck them from his Father's hand. It causes us to persevere to the end. Once saved, always saved. This passage doesn't take away from that at all. But we, never, we always must remember that God's persevering hand, the death grip that he has on it, has also the means of grace on every finger. The Word of God. The Word of God. It holds us. It guides us through this life into His eternal rest. Let us never undermine the Word of God. What is the Word of God? Maybe we should just stop and think about that. When God speaks to us, He's speaking through His Word. Children, have you thought of that? When your mom or your dad reads the Bible with you, or when the pastor's reading the Bible, that isn't our words coming to you. That is God's Word. It's God's Word coming to you. You say, well, there's many different books of the Bible. There's many different writers of the Bible. But each one of these writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what the Word, what the what the living God wanted us to hear today. And we also must recognize that the Word of God should never be separated from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Word, the Word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes, I'm afraid in our culture today, is that many, many Christians... They, they want to know that they have Jesus, and that's all that really matters. We have, 
We believed in Jesus. We have Jesus in our back pocket. We have Jesus in our life. Whatever you want to say. But don't bring all of that Bible here. We don't need all of that theology and Bible teaching. The reality is this. Is Jesus can't be separated from Scripture. Period. Because Jesus is the Word. And that Word was made flesh. You can't have God without the Bible. Notice, notice how it says this again. For the Word of God is living. The Word of God is living because it comes from a living God. It doesn't come from a dead God who wrote a book for us for today and He's no longer here. It comes from a living God. And this living God is a God who gives life. The Word of God is living. It's a God who lives, Scripture lives, and God here speaks and acts through His living Word. Think about how many times in the prophets, the Lord came to the prophet and the prophet had to deliver a message. And and he would say something like this, As I live, says the Lord. And then would pronounce his prophecy. As I live, says the Lord. That's why Isaiah also says in Isaiah 55, or God says through Isaiah, my word shall not return to me empty. I will accomplish all that I have in it according to my purpose. God's Word is living. It's working. And it's powerful. For the Word of God is living and powerful, our text says. The word powerful is dynamos, dynamite. His Word is dynamite. There's once a an evangelist that was in in uh, Lebanon and uh, was, was overtaken by Syrian army and and uh, they they were at the border and they had a checkpoint and and as this evangelist was going through the checkpoint the soldiers were sticking their guns right in the vehicle and holding them up and and saying what do you all have to declare what do you have in your vehicle and the evangelist says I have dynamite you think that was a very smart thing to say. Such a context. And he quickly picked up a Bible and he handed it to the soldier. And he said, here's what I'm talking about. Read this and it will break into your life with the power of God. Isn't that what dynamite does? It goes into rocks, into the crevice of rocks. And the hard rocks are splintered into pieces and enters into our lives. A word is living. It's dynamite. Do we believe that? Do we take the word of God that seriously? 
word is living, it's powerful, it's active. Notice how our text says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Word is shown throughout Scripture to be like a sword. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To bring that all together with, with who Christ is, we find in Revelation 1, verse 16, as, as John sees a, a vision of Jesus Christ, he says, he says for his mouth came, from his mouth came a two-edged sword. And as he rode into judgment in Revelation 19, he, he's coming with a sword, riding on that white horse, and his name is the Word of God. The Word of God. That sword, it comes and it penetrates. It penetrates with piercing power. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Of joints and marrow. Now, we're not to think of this as some kind of psychological lesson or anatomy lesson or anything like that. But rather, what's being used here is to describe what follows. Is that the sword is coming in so specifically and so precisely to the whole of one's person, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. That the whole man is affected by the Word of God. And it penetrates with the precise of a surgeon wielding his scalpel. Because there God is doing spiritual surgery through that, through his word. To take away the hardness and the deadness of our heart and to implant into us life through his word. You see, without the word of God, we are dead. Dead. And yet it's through the Word of God that God does His regenerating work by His Spirit. And He takes away all the diseases of our heart and implants unto us spiritual life. How does God do that? Because He's perceptive. Not only is it powerful and penetrating, but it's perceptive. The Word of God goes inside and it discerns our thoughts, even the intentions of our heart. Isn't that so true about the Bible? Sometime you're reading it, it's like, that just hit me right for today. That was absolutely what I needed to hear. Maybe good or bad. It was precisely what I needed to hear. God comes in by His Spirit. He discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. You realize that sword is two-sided. It's got two edges. And it separates, it divides, it discerns those thoughts and intents of the heart whether they be for God or against God. 
It tests our attitudes. You see, the Bible, it often tests our attitude toward God. Isn't that so true when we read something and we're convicted by it and we just want to push it aside? It doesn't fit my vision. It doesn't fit my vision statement. So the Word of God doesn't have a place there. So we set the Word of God aside. It shows our attitude toward God. But God's Word, when it comes to us, we need to surrender to it. We need to, as it were, fall before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm convicted of this sin. Please forgive me of this sin. And we surrender our lives unto His Word. You see, sometimes we don't like to hear the piercing applications of the Word of God for our own hearts and lives. And yet, they are so needful. Because what Scripture is doing, it's untangling the issues of our heart. It's exposing our sin so that we confess it. And we flee from it. Well, just how perceptive is this word? Are you ready for this? So perceptive that there isn't one creature that's hidden from God's sight. But all things are open. Everything is naked before Him. How does that make you feel? As the Scripture strips us bare before the eyes of God. I think for many of us, we, we wouldn't want to stand anywhere in the presence of people naked. Not one of us. But to stand before the living God, not only naked, but completely exposed every thought. It's like he opens up our brain and can see exactly what we're thinking. What we intend to do. Open before the eyes of God. You see, you see why John Kelvin said we can't really understand who we are until we understand who God is. God who is so perceptive. God who is so powerful. God who will judge perfectly by His Word. Don't let me just give... Don't let me just tell you this. Let Jesus tell it to you. John 12. Jesus is exposing the errors of the Pharisees. He says to them, He who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. So the Word, Jesus, and Father, God, they're all the same. And he has come as the Word, as a light into the world. And whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But listen to this. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. They have the words of Jesus. We will be judged by the words of Jesus. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, says Jesus, but the Father who sent me gave me command. What I should say, what I should speak, I know that his command is everlasting life, says Jesus. And so I speak. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a God whose word endures forever, whose word is sufficient to transform our minds, a a word that's sufficient to conform us to the image of Christ, a word that's sufficient to assure us unto God's eternal rest, a word that's sufficient to preserve us and to bring us into God's eternal rest. That word of the Lord endures forever. Will Scripture be what guides us unto God's rest? Will we believe it? Will we trust it by faith? Can you find rest in Him today and for eternity in His Word? A word that is perfect. A word that is suitable. A word that says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he assures us of that rest through his promises. Let us be diligent students of God's word, receiving it in faith as we are diligently seeking to enter God's eternal rest. Amen. Lord, we bow before you in your word. And we confess, O Lord, how often our hearts are hard as stone, and how we often have to be reminded again and again today, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. How often we need to be reminded the warnings of Scripture. But Lord, today we also delight in our Savior's words when He says to us, Come unto Me, and I will give you rest. Lord, may we rest on what You have done, Your finished work, May we rest on what you have said, your fully revealed word. May we rest for all eternity with you and your sovereign power over all things. For Jesus' sake, amen.